And we ask now that as the scriptures are read and the word proclaimed, that you alone would speak. That yours would be the only voice that we hear this morning. That by your love and your grace and your power, that you would push back the voices of the crowd. The voices of deception. The voices that say that you're not good enough or smart enough or done enough. And that we would hear your call of love to come down into your arms, to be lifted up, exalted by you. In Jesus' mighty name, and all who agree say, amen. Our scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 19. Uh, Let's share in God's good word together. Then Jesus entered and walked through Jericho. There was a man there, his name Zacchaeus, the head tax man and quite rich. He wanted desperately to see Jesus, but the crowd was in his way. He was a short man and couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree so he could see Jesus when he came by. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Vacation Bible School starts Tuesday. When does it start? Tuesday. Yeah, we hope you'll come and be a part of that. It's a great, great time. Um, as a way to, to build and to make sure the, the congregation as a whole uh, is involved in, in how we learn together and, and believe together and sing together, we want you to know the things that we're teaching the students. Um, it's, it's a great and wonderful time. And so uh, over the last number of weeks, um, we are teaching the students um, a scripture verse. And, and they'll read this, and so we want you to know that same scripture verse, so when they come home uh, or they stop by and they tell you that, you'll know it as well. Um, it goes like this. Read it with me. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Now, I will let you know I'm really bad at this, but let's try it together, right? The memory challenge, da, 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 right? One, two, three. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Isaiah 43, two. Is that right? Hey, we got it. Good. Good, good, good. Okay. So as we go through this, um, on Tuesday night of Bible school, um, we're going to talk to the kids that Jesus said, follow me to four fishermen, and they left what? Everything. To become Jesus' disciples. Uh, Not just for a little bit, but it became their way of life. One of the things that we uh, probably won't talk to the kids about, but we want you to know, is that uh, more than likely, uh, these fishermen were upper middle class uh, to wealthy folks. These were businessmen who had, basically, if you were to go down to Florida, they have a charter fishing boat business. They might have three, four, five boats. They hire other people to do the business. Uh, the, the, these guys were not day laborers, more than likely. It meant a lot for them to leave. These were learned people. We know that they knew Greek, that they were able to engage through the other scriptures uh, that we read. So more than likely, these four fishermen, when they left their dad in the boat, they were leaving the family business that they had built perhaps over 20 years. It was no small thing for them to follow Jesus. It's no small thing for us to follow Jesus. So that'll be night one. Night two, on Wednesday, uh, we'll talk about the story of Martha and Mary. Jesus says to Martha, accomplishing the most is not the same as accomplishing what? The most important, right? We can be distracted and busy by lots and lots of things. It's amazing to me, Martha didn't even have a smartphone, right? But yet still, she was distracted. So we need to understand that we ought not just blame our smartphone. That's easy to do. It really doesn't matter. You can be distracted by many, many things. It's been true for thousands of years. So when we follow Jesus, it's something we do intentionally. It's not something that happens accidentally. And then uh, today, I want to share with you about what we're going to share on the last night of Bible school on Thursday night. And that's this, that Jesus sees us and will always be our friend. Will you say that with me? Jesus sees us and will always be our friend. 
that true? Do you believe that? Well, I think I believe that most of the time. But every once in a while, if I'm not careful, I'm like, always? Like, I'm really careful with always, aren't you? Always be our friend. That's what we're going to tell the kids. Because it's true. Jesus sees you wherever you are, up in a tree or down in a valley. He sees you, and he will always be your friend. That is the character of God. Love and light. In him, there's no darkness at all. He will always be our friend. So, and Jesus, um, to, to let this story sort of soak on us, um, there are lots of the pieces of the story we won't talk to the kids about, but that piece we will. That Jesus sees us, and he will always be our friend. And so as a setup, and if you have your Bibles with you today, I would invite you to turn to chapter 18 of Luke. Uh, we're going to look at 18 and 19 together. Um, when you look at the story of Jesus, I hope that you'll always see a little bit about what's before it and a little bit about what's after it, because the chapter and verse often mess us up. That was for the printers, not for the storytelling. And so be sure and kind of look around the story so you can really understand the story, because often Jesus will talk in two and three stories at a time, and he does this. And the other thing is Jesus will often tell you something or tell the people something in sort of an abstract way, and then he'll walk it out concretely. So it's sort of a show and tell kind of piece. It's really a tell and then show um, piece that Jesus does throughout the Bible. So in, in this case, in chapter 18, Jesus tells this next story. It's a story. It, it isn't real people. but He's laying this out to some who are complacently pleased with themselves over their moral performance. And they look down their noses at the common people. Okay, so this story is meant to be us. Uh, to, it's to talk to us um, and not to the people who slept in this morning. Okay, not those people. All right, so this is for us. And Jesus says this, there are two men, they go up to the temple, their church, um, to pray. One's a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, and the other a tax man. Um, if we were doing melodrama, every time I said tax man, you would say boo, right? That's how you would, you would, tell you would do it. So the Pharisee uh, posed and prayed like this. And if you were Jewish and we were doing melodrama, you'd be yay every time I said Pharisee. Don't do that. It'll distract me. But you can do it in your head, okay? So the Pharisee, yay, posed and prayed like this. Oh, God, thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, crooks, adulterers, or heaven forbid, like this tax man. Boo. Right? I fast twice a week and tithe on all my income. Meanwhile, the tax man, boo. Right? Um, Slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up, says, God, give me mercy. Forgive me, a sinner. And this is Jesus' comment about this. He says, the tax man, boo, not the other, went home and made right with God. He went home, made right with God. This was mind-blowing to people. If you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face, Jesus says. But if you're content to be simply yourself, really who you are, you'll become more than yourself. Because Jesus can take the real you and make a miracle out of it, wherever you are. But you have to be real with him. He's not going to transform your fake self. He can only transform your real self. You may have learned it as I did in the NRSV. I invite you to read this with me. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Isn't that true? Any of y'all ever go to a wedding and not really sure where to sit? Like at the, at the, at the dinner, the banquet later? As a pastor, I get, this happens to me all the time. Uh, you, go to, you go to these banquets, you go to these dinners, you go to these weddings, and, and you don't really know where to sit. Let me help you out. Jesus says, don't sit at the head table. Right? Really, it's embarrassing because you sit down at the head table. It's where all the food is, where all the important people are. And then the bride and groom walk in and they're like, dude, what are you doing? Like, this is, this is not for you. You need to go sit over there. How embarrassing would that be, right? So it's never happened to me. I'm just saying. It could, right? The smart money is on where? You go and you sit in the back. 
And this has actually happened to me before, and it's delightful. The bride and the groom, they go, Pastor Mark, what are you doing all the way back there? Come up here. We saved you a spot at the head table. Now, that's fun. Because I'm like, oh, yeah, y'all going to eat later. Hold on. You know, you just walk on up in front of you, you get your food, it's great. And, and so whoever humbles themselves will be exalted, Jesus says. And whoever falsely tries to exalt themselves will be humbled. That's just the way the world works. It, it really is the case, Jesus says. So in this story, we're supposed to know a few things. Tax collectors were hated by other Jews because they were traitors, because they were complicit with the Roman oppressors who had over, overtaken them. Secondly, uh, tax collectors were assumed to be dishonest because they were going to get the money however they could. And thirdly, the Pharisees were the good guys in these stories. Supposedly, that's what they thought they were going to be. Pharisees were Jewish teachers of the law who taught what was right. So if you didn't know what was right, you would go to a Pharisee, and the Pharisee was the attorney that said, oh yeah, this is what the law means, and this is the rightness of it. So these people were of high esteem in that culture. So that's the first story. Sort of an abstract story, Jesus just tells it that way. But then the second story is about a real person, somebody who comes to Jesus in real time. This really happened right in front of him. So one day, the scripture says, according to Luke, one of the local officials asked him, good teacher speaking to Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, you know the commandments, don't you? No illicit sex, no killing, no stealing, no lying, honor your father and mother. And Jesus said, uh, no, the guy says, well, I've kept them all for as long as I can remember. And when Jesus heard that, he said, then there's only one thing left to do. Sell everything you own and give it away to the poor. You will have riches in heaven, then come follow me. Now notice, this is about the relationship with Jesus, which according to the Gospel of John, is what eternal life is. Nothing more, nothing less. It is the relationship with Jesus. This was the last thing the official expected to hear. He was very rich and became terribly sad. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let them go. Seeing his reaction, Jesus said, Do you have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter God's kingdom? I'd say, Jesus is saying this, it's easier to thread a camel through a needle's eye than get a rich person into God's kingdom. Yikes. Now, of course, in the Jewish, uh, particularly if you ever have read Proverbs in the Bible, you're like, this is, this is a head scratcher. Because basically what they believed was everybody who was affluent was blessed by God. And by the way, that's still around. And they figured that poor people were lazy and not blessed by God. That's how they looked at it. That's how they looked at it. And Jesus is turning that on its head. So the people, I mean, if rich people can't get into heaven, then who can? That's what they say. Then who has any chance at all? No chance at all, Jesus said. If you think you can pull it off by yourself, you can't. But, he says, every chance in the world if you trust God to do it. If you let God raise you up. We're back to that exaltation, humble thing. See how that works? You can't do it on your own. But if you let God transform you, God can do it. So the cliff notes on the story is this. There's a smart, rich leader. Everybody loves him. He's done the right thing. He knows the law forward and backward. He's a nice guy from everything anybody can tell. And he wants to know from Jesus how to have eternal life, a relationship with Jesus. And Jesus says to him, give everything you have to the poor and follow me. Now, at this point, we have to decide, or you have to decide in your own heart and mind, um, whether this is a universal teaching or whether this is a particular teaching. We have to do this all the way through the Bible. Right? So when Paul says women can't speak in church, is that a particular teaching to that church at that time, or is that a universal teaching at all times? Our tradition says that's a particular teaching to Ephesians in that place. Does it make sense? That's why we have women ministers in our tradition, because we think there's plenty of other scriptures that override that one piece. Make sense? So that's a particular teaching. 
Now, we have to decide about this. Is it particular or universal? I believe it's particular. That it's to this man who's trying to follow Jesus and his stuff is in the way. I don't think that everybody in this room, uh, God means that we're supposed to sell everything we have and give it to the poor tomorrow and then you know, hope the bank doesn't you know, take all our stuff. Right? That, that's, that doesn't make sense. But every person in our own heart has to decide, do I have my things or do my things have me? Which is it? One good way to get at this is, do you have off-site storage? I'm just, just something to think about. Okay? Scripture says he was very rich and became terribly sad because he knew his things were more important to him than Jesus. That was the book on him, and Jesus knew it too. So for him, if he was going to follow Jesus, that's what had to go. For you, it might be something completely different. You may be good with things, but not so good with your kids or your spouse or your job or your entertainment or whatever it is. Jesus knows your heart, and that's really what you want to talk about. Okay, God, it's true. I've got this part under control, but this part over here, that's a mess. You and I know it. I'm going to need to hand that to you for you to transform it. So Jesus says this, it's easier to thread a camel through a needle's eye than get a rich person into God's kingdom. Wow, that is quite a statement. It's a hard one. And, and, and that's how he leaves it. I mean, that's, that's the second story as we're rolling into the Zacchaeus story. And so you can imagine people are sort of on edge when they're thinking about rich people. Like, ooh, Jesus is going to get them. So, so let's, let's roll into this third story. Jesus is coming um, down from Galilee, from Nazareth is up here. He's coming down here. He's going to hang a ride at Jericho and come into Jerusalem for the very last week of his life. Right? If you, if you follow the gospel all the way through, this is the, one of the last acts, the last miracle, so to speak, that he does before the Passion Week, before he goes to the cross. And so here's the scene. Enter Zacchaeus. Right? Jesus has just said, it is harder to get a camel through a needle's eye than a rich man to get into heaven. Enter the richest man everybody knows. That's quite a setup, isn't it? You see, Zacchaeus is the richest of the rich. He's the richest of all the tax collectors put together. So the scripture says there was a man there, his name Zacchaeus, the head tax man, not just one tax man. He was the tax man that everybody else answered to, and he was quite rich. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, um, I grew up at a time where uh, there was one guy that I always think of. When I think of Zacchaeus, I think of Louis de Palma. You may have never heard of him, but he looks like this. I have to help in any way I can. Oh, no, no. It's just that they told me I'd be starting work today as a driver. Oh, here's my hack line. You're a cab driver? Uh-huh. What do you mean busting my chops here and making believe you're a regular person? <laughs> no, wait over there. I'll call your name and number. Till then, keep your mouth shut. Baloney. <laughs> Once a bum, always a bum. Oh, yeah, yeah, I say Tony's got a good chance. I know he's got a good chance. I say he can win. Want to bet? Well, uh... (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'll bet. How much? Five dollars. Woo! Mr. Big Booker bets five whole dollars on his friend who he's sure is going to win. All right, all right, a hundred bucks. Money in the bank. I hope you're going to be at the fight, Louie. I'd like to collect on the spot. You're going to give up a Friday night, the busiest night of the week, to go watch the macaroni pony fight? Yeah. I came late. What happened? I lost. I know. I saw every minute. (laughs) Here's your hundred bucks, Louie. Ah, come on. Are you kidding 
I was rooting for myself. Come on, I lost. I want to pay up. Come on, are you kidding? We're from the same garage. This is the last time I'm going to offer you. Gimme. <laughs> Come on, we're from the same garage. That's Zacchaeus. See, he was the chief collector, and he paid the Roman contract in advance. He was the only guy that had enough money uh, to basically pay Rome a million dollars. Because Jericho was a very rich city. And only the wealthiest of the wealthy could actually afford to pay the contract in advance to Rome. And once he'd done so, then he hired the meanest, ruthless, biggest, bulkiest, toughest mercenaries he could find to collect from everybody in Jericho and their surrounding towns. That's who Zacchaeus was. And he got to keep whatever money they could shake down out of people. Just business. Just business. And so uh, when Zacchaeus came to town, he was the most hated guy around. Because of what his guys had done to their families to get the money. Now, to be fair to Zacchaeus, if he only collected $500,000, he just had a very bad year. But if he collected $2 million, good for him. Good for him. That's the way it was. On the backs of his people, for the people who oppressed them. So, they employed others to collect, hoping for the profit. And he was good at it. So, Zacchaeus was the richest, most hated, lonely, outcast in Jericho. Now, to be fair, when we start making metaphors, it's really tough to take Zacchaeus to the day, isn't it? It's tough. But, but let's give it a shot. Let's see if we can get close. Do you remember these three? Uh, some of y'all know where I'm going. We love these guys. You remember Thunder Alley? Oh, the good old days. Um, don't tell your people, Don. I'm just, just saying. You know, we, we love these guys. They're hopeful and young and oh, just great. We just, didn't you love that time? It was such a good time. And then we made it to the finals. It was amazing against those terrible Golden State people. <laughs> Remember Draymond Green? Just, ugh, Draymond Green. Ugh. I mean, who would ever want to play with Draymond Green? I mean, he would just bring pain into people's lives. And it just is terrible, right? And so who in the world, I mean, would you want to work with Stephen Adams or Draymond Green? Well, apparently Draymond Green. How do y'all feel about KD these days? Maybe he'll burn his jerseys, right? Just terrible. I mean, it's fun to hate Golden State, isn't it? Just bleh, Golden State, right? When I, when I go places and people from other countries uh, hear that I'm from Oklahoma City, they go, oh, Kevin Durant. And I ghost them. I'm like, I don't know who you're talking about. I have no idea. I have no memory of that at all, right? My Bible says in the footnote that Zacchaeus was the one that everyone despised. Everyone. He didn't even have a golden state to go to. Everybody despised Zacchaeus. Well, maybe, I mean, he's seven foot tall, so that doesn't work. Maybe this guy works. Y'all know Bernie Madoff? He's 80. He's going to die in jail. He's in prison for 150 years. His real name's Bernard. I don't think anybody's calling him Bernie these days. His son killed himself. I mean, he's a tragic figure in every way. He was the uh, non-executive chairman of NASDAQ which put him in a place of great power. And then he confessed to operating the largest, the largest Ponzi scheme in world history, world history, and the largest financial fraud in U.S. history. Prosecutors now estimate that he uh, basically wiped out 4,800 people. Teachers, firefighters, police officers, their pensions gone, all in his scheme, to the point of, hmm, give or take, 
$64.8 billion. How do you feel about Bernie? They're worse. You know this guy, Martin Shkreli, September 2015. Uh, just business, friends, just business. He buys a business, and he, he takes an antiparasitic drug named uh, Daraprim, and he takes the price from $13.50 a pill to $750 per pill. People are literally dying around the world and across the country because of him. Quoted uh, by many media outlets as the most hated man in America. You can see why. Now, I don't know if you follow the news in similar ways I do, but I remember the scenes of these guys coming in and out of the courthouse, and oftentimes they would get shoved. Right? People were anything they could do to try to hurt these guys they wanted to do, and their lives were at stake. This was true, too, for Zacchaeus. You see, the crowd made sure that Zacchaeus could not see. It wasn't just that he could not see. He's not at the parade, and, and he just happens to be tiny. No, they're just like, oh, look, at there's Zacchaeus' wall. Right? They're making sure that whatever Zacchaeus wants to do, he can't do because he's the most despised guy in the area. And he wanted desperately to see Jesus, that's what the scriptures tell us. But the crowd, the crowd was in his way. He was a short man, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree so he could see Jesus when he came by. You might surmise that he ran ahead for his life. And he climbed a tree for his life. So they couldn't get to him. As well as coming to see Jesus. And this is important because the thing is, if you remember back to Luke chapter 15, it says that the father ran to the son. And that's supposed to tell us something because men in Jewish culture do not run. Even today in the Middle East, you don't see guys in their long flowing robes trucking it, going out for a jog. You don't see that. It doesn't happen. Ever. And they certainly don't climb trees. You just didn't do it. There was something else going on behind the scenes. There was something that would drive him to run away, drive him to climb the tree. And in the most wonderful VBS way, we'll tell it, it's, it's for Jesus, which is true. But it's also to save his skin. And then we come to the encounter between Jesus and this guy. Because remember, it's what? Easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than this guy. Right? To, to have anything to do with Jesus. And the folks are expecting him to get it. So when Jesus gets to the tree, everybody in the crowd's like, ooh, he's going to get it now. You're going to get yours, Zacchaeus. Jesus is going to get you. Now, if we're fair... Don't we do that sometimes? We think about the people we don't like, and we say things like, oh, well, I forgive him, but Jesus is going to get him. Right? That is not what the Bible wants us to do, friends. That is not the heart of God. So he says, Zacchaeus, hurry down. Blew his mind. Today is my day to be a guest in your home. Zacchaeus scrambled out of the tree, could not believe his good luck, delighted to take Jesus home with him. And everyone who saw the incident was indignant, and they, say it with me, grumped. Hmm. You ever had somebody you hated just have a great day? <laughs> Whatever happened to cheaters never prosper. Sometimes they do. And we're mad about it. They grumped. So they would say things like this. What business does he have getting cozy with this crook? And Zacchaeus just stood there a little stunned. And he stammers out apologetically. Uh, Master, I, I give away half my income to the poor. And if I'm caught cheating, I pay four times the damage. Now, at this point, scholars have spent a great deal of time. What we don't want you to think is that he's defending himself. He's not. He's, he's indefensible. 
And he knows it. Jesus knows it. But what he, this is present tense, by the way. And so in the moment that he has a relationship with Jesus, his life is so transformed, he repents to such a degree that he does the very best that the law offers. He's not taking the lowest common denominator trying to sneak into heaven. He's like, Jesus, I'm all yours, and whatever you say, I'll do. And the way we know this is by the fruit that he's putting out in repentance. And so the, the cliff notes are these, friends, that Jesus honored the hated. Jesus honored the outcast, and that changed everything. And when Jesus sees him, and he's always his friend, Zacchaeus rejoices, and it changes his life. And as he's rejoicing, as he's coming into relationship with God himself, as heaven is coming to earth, the religious people grumped. Because they didn't want him in their pew. They didn't want his kids running with their kids. They didn't want him around them. Solely their good name. Yet Zacchaeus is eager to repent. He's eager to turn his life towards God. He's eager to do the very best that the scripture calls of him. And he's showing that he actually knows the Old Testament scripture, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In Exodus 22, he's living this out because he knows the law. And that is that if he steals a sheep, he's got to pay back four times the amount. And that's what he says he's going to do. Right? If I've stolen, I'll, I'll, I'll give you back four times. I will do what the law says to do. The scripture says the thief shall make restitution. Now, in the Western church, we have a lot to learn around this, friends. Because in Western church revivalism, in the last 200 years, we've largely lost this story and lost this peace. Maybe you've heard this, that, you know, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you say, Jesus, forgive me, that everything's made right in the world. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says Jesus is coming to you for relationship. And if you understand that, your life is to change in such a way. And it may require you to pay back four times somebody you defrauded. Because you're not going to be in right relationship with them. And certainly don't put Jesus' name on it after you steal from them. Does it make sense? It's really important we get this right. Because when we're in the right relationship with Jesus, it changes our hearts. It makes us want to do the right thing. But make no mistake about it. You can't do whatever you want to do to people and then throw some Jesus language around it and then be made right in the eyes of God. I know I'm going way against like 20 years of your upbringing for some of you. But I want you to be serious about this and really look at this. Because yes, salvation is in the relationship with Jesus, but that relationship with Jesus demands that we act differently in the future. Bear fruit worthy of repentance, the scripture says. And here's the miracle in case you passed it or missed it. Jesus just put a camel through the eye of a needle. He did it. Something that only he could do. Zacchaeus couldn't do it on his own. He couldn't. Only Jesus, only God himself could pull a rich man through the eye of a needle and give him salvation this day in his house. And that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, today is salvation day in this home, Zacchaeus. Here is Zacchaeus, son of Abraham. And people were like, what? Jesus said, what? I mean, son of Abraham, that is the highest possible honor you could say about somebody in a Jewish culture. Son of Abraham, the very founder of the faith. For the Son of Man, Jesus, the name he uses for himself, came to find and restore the lost. Make no mistake, friends. Jesus is the hero of the story because only he can exalt Zacchaeus. And he does. And Jesus seeks the lost wherever we may be, wherever we may be found. And so when we come to these stories, friends, these real stories with real people in the Bible, we have a temptation to make ourselves Jesus in the story. Oh, I know. Pastor Mark wants us to be nice, to mean people. Yes, I do. But that's not it. We are Jesus at times in the story, maybe, rarely, but maybe. More often, we're the crowd, aren't we? Aren't we the crowd? 
That Jesus says, I love these people, and we're like, we're not so sure. Jesus loved them because I can't. We're the crowd in the story, too. And sometimes we're Zacchaeus. We really are. We, we want to see Jesus from a distance. We want to see Jesus go by. We want to be a part of the parade. We want to be a part of the crowd, but we're not really sure we want that encounter with Jesus because we know it will demand a change in our life. So, I invite you to find yourself wherever you are in the story. I haven't been the tree yet, but that would be cool. But, you know, you can be Jesus or Zacchaeus or the crowd, however that is. And for your action step, I want you to think about this. How will you honor someone who was despised this week? I changed it. I wanted to say, how will you honor someone you despise this week? But I suppose some of you aren't ready for that yet. You're not ready to admit that there are people you still despise in your life. If you are mature enough to get there and go, yes, there are people I despise, this is how I'm going to honor them. That's great. If you're not there yet, think of someone someone else would despise and honor them. Help them. That's okay, too. And then, if you want to get really salty, and you see yourself as Zacchaeus, as we all are from time to time, make amends to persons we've harmed, unless it would injure them. If you have an ex or you have a former relationship where you really did somebody dirty, don't, and they tell you, I never want to speak to you again, don't speak to them. Honor that. That's a way to show honor. But if there's, there's ways for you to be reconciled, then reconcile. And Jesus is very serious about that. He says, look, don't come to the church and play act and, and, unless, he says, if you're putting something on the altar, go first be reconciled to your brother or sister. That's first. And then be made right with God. By the way, if you've ever been to AA or SA or SLA or OA or NA or any of the A's, this is step eight and nine of the 12 steps. Make amends to those whom we've harmed. It's the way of Jesus. Now, I'm about to tell a, a high-voltage story. Um, and I just I want to say that up front. Because I think it gets to the heart of what Jesus is doing in this story. It's a true story. It's told by Tony Campolo. Many of you know him. A few years ago, Tony, who grew up in the inner city in Philadelphia, along the East Coast, he took a trip to Honolulu. He's a professor of sociology, a Christian. Um, I recommend him to you. I think he's amazing. A few years ago, Tony flew to Hawaii to speak at a conference. And he had major jet lag. And the way he tells it is he checks into the hotel and he tries to get some sleep. But unfortunately, his internal clock wakes him up at 3 in the morning. The night is dark. The streets are silent. The world is asleep. But Tony is wide awake and his stomach is growling. He gets up and prowls the streets looking for a place to get some bacon and eggs for the early breakfast. He's hungry. Everything is closed except for one grungy dive of a diner in an alley. And he goes in. He sits down at the counter. And the fat guy behind the counter comes over and he asks, what do you want? He wasn't, you know, one of the normals. Well, Tony isn't so hungry anymore. And he's eyeing some donuts under the plastic cover. And he says, well, I'll just have a donut and black coffee. And as he sits there, munching on his donut and sipping on his coffee at 3.30 in the morning, walk in eight or nine provocative, loud prostitutes just off work. They plop down right next to him. And Tony finds himself uncomfortably surrounded by this group of smoking, swearing hookers. And he gulps his coffee, planning to make a quick getaway. And then the woman sitting right next to him says to her friend, you know what? Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. To which her friend nastily replies, what do you want from me? A birthday party, huh? You want me to get a cake and sing happy birthday to you? And the first woman says, oh, come on. Why do you have to be so nasty? I mean, why do you have to put me down? I'm, I'm just saying it's my birthday. 
I don't want anything from, from you. I mean, why should I have a birthday party anyway? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? Well, when Tony Campolo heard that, something happened in his spirit. He made a decision. He sat and waited until the woman left. And then he asked the fat guy at the counter, do they come here every night? Yeah, he answered. And he says, no, 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 the one right next to me, does she, does she come here every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. Yeah, she's here every night. She's been coming here for years. Why do you want to know? He says this, because she just said that tomorrow's her birthday. What do you think? Do you think we could maybe throw a little birthday party for her right here in the diner? And a cute kind of smile crept over the fat man's chubby face. That's great, he says. Yeah, that's great. I like it. And he turns to the kitchen and he shouts to his wife, hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes' birthday and he wants to throw a party for her right here. And his wife comes out and she goes, that's terrific. You know, Agnes is really nice. She's always trying to help other people and nobody does, ever does anything nice for her. So they made their plans. Tony says he'll be back at 2.30 the next morning with some decorations and the man who's behind the counter. Turns out his name is Harry and he says he'll make the cake. And so at 2.30 the next morning, Tony's back. And he has crepe paper and some other decorations and a sign that were made from uh, big pieces of cardboard. And it says, Happy Birthday, Agnes. They had decorated the place from one end to the other. It was looking great. The word had gotten out on the street that there was a party. And by 3.15, it seemed that every hooker in Honolulu was there. Wall to wall. And at 3.30 on the dot, the door swings open. You can hear the ching, ching, ching. And in walks Agnes and her friend. Tony has everybody crouched down. They all jump up. They shout, hey, happy birthday, Agnes. And Agnes is absolutely flabbergasted. She's stunned. Her mouth falls open. Her knees start to buckle. And she almost falls over. And when the birthday cake came out, oh, my gosh, with all the candles, that's when she totally loses it. Now she's sobbing. And crying, totally overwhelmed. And Harry, who's not used to seeing prostitutes cry, gruffles, mum, you know, he, he mumbles this out. He goes, blow out your candles, Agnes. Cut the cake. So she pulls herself together. She blows them out. And everyone goes nuts. I mean, they cheer and they yell, cut the cake, Agnes, cut the cake. But Agnes is just transfixed. I mean, she's just looking at that cake. Without taking her eyes off it, slowly and softly, she says, um, Look, Harry, um, if it's okay, I mean, well, I'd really like to. I, what I want to ask is, is it okay if I just keep the cake a little while? Is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Well, Harry doesn't know what to do with that. So he just shrugs and he says, Sure, that's what you want to do. Keep the cake. Take it home if you want. She says, Oh, could I? Really? Really? I, I, just, I just live down the street. Just, just a couple of doors, Tony. I, I want to take the cake home. Is, is that okay? I'll be right back, honest. She slips off her stool. She picks up the cake as if it's sacred, as if it's the Holy Grail. She lifts it up, and she walks out the door. Everybody watches in stunned silence. When the door closes behind her, nobody seems to know what to do. They just look at each other in stunned silence. And then they look at Tony. 
Tony gets up on a chair and he says, what do you say that we pray together? And there they are in a hole in the wall diner in a greasy spoon in Honolulu, half the prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning listening to Tony Campolo pray for Agnes, for her life, for her health, for her salvation. And Tony recalls, I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her, good to her. And when he's finished, Harry leans over with this trace of hostility in his voice. And he says, hey, you never told me you was a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to anyway? And in one of those moments, when just the right words came, Tony answers him quietly. I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry thinks about that for a moment. In a mocking way, he says, no, you don't. There ain't no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. Yep, I'd join a church like that. Would you? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you go and you find us wherever we are, wherever we are, in a tree, in a diner, in our home, in a pew. We thank you that you see us and you are always our friend. And we thank you with everything we are. And we pray the prayer that you taught us by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.